Well, well, good morning, brothers and sisters. I greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I welcome you on this uh, Lord's Day Sabbath. It is wonderful to be back home with our church and wonderful to be worshiping with uh, the people of God this morning. We continue this morning with our study through the Apocalypse of John or the uh, Book of Revelation. The 11th chapter of Revelation, John, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, hears the, the saints or the people of God from all ages and they are saying together in verse 18 of chapter 11 and the nations were enraged and your wrath came this is what the people of God have said or will say and the time for the dead to be judged and the time to reward your bondservants the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. The 11th chapter, in the 11th chapter, John is given a vision of the, the ultimate end for the nations who belong to the wicked kingdom of Satan. They shall be judged, they shall suffer the wrath of God, they shall ultimately be destroyed. But those who fear God, those who are of the kingdom of God, they shall be rewarded. Both the small and the great shall be rewarded. That is, the, the known of men and the unknown of men who belong to God shall be rewarded. In this 11th chapter, the one that we've already dealt with, John alludes to the question that we that we considered or that we read of in Psalm chapter 2. Now this is going to be important. The question was this from Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? This is the question that is being considered in the 11th chapter, but, but not just there. The question is, why are nations enraged? Why do nations wrath? Right? Notice that the psalmist not only exposes the wicked deeds of nations, but, but the psalmist also reminds us that nations are made up of people. People that are enraged. And in their rage, they devise, listen to the phrase, vain things. Nations made up of people... People who devise vain things. Well, why are the nations, peoples, enraged? Why do they wrath? And, and second question, what are the vain things that are being devised by the enraged nations and peoples? The psalmist gives insight into the answers to those questions. Psalm 2 again. The kings then. Now it goes to kings. The kings of the earth. They take their stand and the rulers take their counsel against who? against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, here's what they say together, in their rage, here's what they say, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. The psalmist connects, now listen to these, connects wrathful nations to particular people who are ruling kingdoms. And peoples within those kingdoms. They are the kingdoms of this world, which could, could be said rightly, the kingdoms of darkness. 
the kingdoms that belong to Satan, the people that belong to Satan. You'll remember in Revelation 11, John hears the loud voices in heaven, the church that is, proclaim, the kingdom, singular, of the world has become the kingdom, singular, of our Lord and of His Christ. The kingdom of the world is, is not, not necessarily nations and kingdoms, but really one kingdom, the kingdom of darkness. Though they be separated kingdoms, they still practice the wickedness of a dark kingdom, the kingdom of Satan. Therefore, John sums them all up as one kingdom, the kingdom of darkness. It, it has set its rage against the Lord and His Christ. And the, psalm te- the psalmist tells us that it is the Lord... And the anointed one, the Messiah, that the kingdom of the world plots against. Um, The kingdoms of the world, the, the, the nations, the peoples, they are raging. Who are they raging against? They are raging against God the Father, God the Son, and let's not us forget God the Holy Spirit. They are saying, verse 3, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Fetters are chains. Let us break their chains from us. Let let us rip their cords from us. Who's there? Uh, Whose cords do they want to rip off of them? The cords of God. The restraints that God has on them to practice their evil, to to practice their rage, to, uh, to put forth action to their rage. They want chains of restraint off of them. So that they can do all that is within their wicked hearts. The kingdom of this world desires to be loosed from the sovereign power of God. The kingdom of this world rages against their creator, God. All who oppose God and His Christ, they belong to the kingdom of this world. And their attempts to to topple His kingdom will always fail. Their attempts to destroy His kingdom will always uh, avail to naught. It is a vain, a futile, pointless, a useless effort to oppose God and His Christ. It's pointless. It's a vain thing. John was shown in the end, uh, John was shown that in the end, those who oppose the kingdom of God shall suffer the wrath of His judgment. They will, they will lose. Now, it may appear as though John is only alluding to Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar? But does not give the answer to to the outcome. Meaning this. Does not give the answer to the question, why do the nations roar? But only gives the outcome. They will be defeated and they will be judged. Follow me. But John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, gives the outcome of the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of this world, before he gives the reason of why there is rage in the world. Now this is going to be a question that we ask throughout this entire sermon. Why do the nations rage? It seems as though John doesn't tell us why the nations rage. It seems as though John in chapter 11 is only telling us what their outcome will be. It's purposeful. I hope that's clear. God, through John, is giving the church comfort. Why are the nations in an uproar? Well, the nations are in an uproar because they are opposing God and His Christ. 
Well, why do you believers and those who are in Revelation, why were you suffering? Why were you experiencing hardship and difficulty? Why are your lives hard as Christians? Because the nation, the kingdom of darkness, is opposing the kingdom of God. And you happen to be a part of the kingdom of God. Therefore, you will suffer because the nations are in an uproar against God and His Christ and any who belong to that kingdom. But in chapter 11, it seems that John is always telling us what the end result will be, but they will lose. And not necessarily telling us what is the reason for all of the chaos that Christians experience in the world. That John is saying, I'm not even going to answer that question. It doesn't matter. But John will answer that question. But in the 11th chapter, God gives us comfort before He answers the question. Are you with me? Before God tells us why, God tells us what the end result will be. It's encouraging for the bride. For you who are in Christ to persevere because you shall be rewarded. The the end has already been set. Victory has already been accomplished. We will be in His presence forevermore is what we see in chapter 11. And as we wait for the glorious return of Christ, we may be tempted to say, where is my victory? We may be tempted in in the midst of our suffering to ask the question, why? Why are things the way that they are for me as a believer? Where is my victory? I hear this talk of crowns, but all I feel and experience is a cross. This has been asked by the prophets and the psalmists when they experience suffering for righteousness, righteousness sake. Why do the wicked prosper? Here in the 12th chapter, God does not leave the question of why unanswered. It may seem like it was unanswered, but that why is skipped over so that we might get the, the, the ultimate result, which is, but the wicked will lose. But here in the 12th chapter, John, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, answers the question of why. God mercifully gives His bride, tenderly gives His bride comfort and clarity. Why? Why we suffer. Why there is trouble in our day. And why there has been since the first promise. And since now we wait for the second promise, the return of Christ. Dear saints, let us consider together this morning, why do the nations rage? Why do the nations rage? Number one, the woman. Let us begin. The woman. Verse 1 of chapter 12. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child. And she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. The apostle sees a a, a great sign in heaven. This uh, in the 11th chapter, John saw the, the temple of God in heaven opened. The ark of His covenant appeared in His temple, w- which is meant to represent the church. 
being in the presence of God. Now in the 12th chapter, a great sign from heaven was given to John. And this sign will be the explanation for the reason of why the nations rage against God and against His Christ. Interestingly, the reason is explained, listen to this, by way of a story. Why do the nations rage? Here is a story. But it's not a fairy tale. It's not mythology, like we'll speak about in just a moment. It is a true story. The story of a woman, a royal woman, who was to give birth to a royal child. This royal child would slay and defeat an ancient evil who disguises himself as a dragon. The dragon learns of this royal son and attempts to kill his mother before the royal child can be born. But she escapes his fury, gives birth to a son. And that royal son fulfills all of what was foretold of him and defeats the dragon once and for all. Some may say that sounds familiar. Isn't that just mythology? Isn't there a, isn't that kind of mythological story told in every every culture throughout the world? Isn't that merely the, the retelling of, of Leto and Python and Zeus and Apollo? Brothers and sisters, friends, there is a a distance from heaven and earth between mythology, regardless of how ancient it may be, and the infallible, inerrant, holy word of God. The scriptures do not borrow from mythology. Mythology borrows from the scriptures. The difference is they don't give glory to the one true God. They give glory to men and to created things. This is no mythology. This is the true word of God. Why do the nations rage? John explains the answer by directing our attention to a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown with twelve stars. We must remember, what's the rule of interpreting this book? The rule of interpreting this book is that we do not take these things, these signs, literally, but symbolically. So then, therefore, we must ask ourselves, what is this sign intending to mean? Even though our immediate instinct, when we read verses 1-5, through would be like the Roman Catholics to say that this woman represents only Mary, the mother of Jesus. We don't take our cues... From, from outside sources, we take our cues from the one true infallible source, from the Word of God. John is giving us allusions. John is pointing to different scriptures in order to give us insight into who this woman is. Now, is, it, is there any plausible way that this woman represents only Mary? The answer is most likely no. This woman will flee, listen to this, will flee into the wilderness. There she will have other children who are faithful Christians. Which is beyond what we could say about Mary. Things about Mary are, are here. But they are not exclusively about Mary. So then, what clues does John give his readers so that we might 
immediately identify who this woman is in order to understand why the nations rage. Why do the nations rage because of a woman? What's so important about this woman? This woman is clothed with the radiance of the sun on her head and the glow of the moon on her feet. And on her head is a crown with twelve, twelve stars. Where have you heard? Those of you who know God's word, and I'm sure that you do, where have you heard this, this imagery? Where have you heard of the sun and the moon and the stars? Where have you heard of this before? Of course, you know. Joseph was given a dream. And in that dream, he saw the sun and the moon and the stars bowing down to him. The sun, Jacob, the moon, Rachel, the stars, he and his brothers bowing down. In the Jewish writings, Abraham is the sun. Isaac is the moon. The stars are Jacob and his children. Here, this woman is clothed with the sun, the moon, and the stars, which is meant to represent this. Who is this woman? The woman is meant to represent the true people of God from both the Old Testament and the New Testament. She's meant to represent all of those who are of the true faith in God. In spite of the darkness that envelops the world, the woman shines because she is clothed with the radiance of the sun, and upon her feet is the glow of the moon. The brightness of the woman is related to her her heavenly identity. Because she is in Christ, she has a heavenly position before God. Therefore, she glows. She shines bright. This also points to the fact that she has wisdom. She will be safeguarded against corruption. She will be safeguarded against giving into temptation. She will be safeguarded against giving in to, this, to the deception of the dragon. This woman is the church. Is the church? It is you and me. This woman is all of the faithful of God who pursue holiness and who are holy. The church, the bride of Christ. Because we are in Christ, we turn away from all other suitors. We give our attention and our affection only to Christ. We are a glorious woman. One who wears atop of our head a crown of beauty and regality. The woman wears a crown with twelve stars on her head. She shares in the kingship of Christ. She has gained victory over those who oppose her faith through persecution. Her victory has not only been accomplished, or has not been accomplished by her own deeds. Her victory has been accomplished by the the deeds of her husband, the Lord Jesus Christ. And through her commitment to testifying to Him, she overcomes her enemies. She is the church. William Hendrickson says, On earth, this church may appear very insignificant and open to scorn and ridicule, but... From the aspect of heaven, this same church is all glorious. All that heaven can contribute of glory and splendor is lavished upon her. John continues to give insight into this woman concerning the church, who is the church, but also why the nations rage. And she was with child. Why do the nations rage against God and His Christ? Because the woman is with child. And she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. Again, why do the nations rage? Because the woman is with child. Uh, You know well that Adam and Eve sinned and disobeyed God. And what did God promise them? But primarily, the focus was toward the serpent. What did He say? I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your seed and her seed, He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. It, It was the promise 
of good news from God. That a Savior would come. But listen, Adam and Eve are listening to this promise. The promise is directed toward the serpent. Adam and Eve will be benefactors. They will hear, a seed will come from the woman. The woman is standing here and the woman is saying, you mean I will survive? You mean I will live? And then, and not only will I live, but that life would come out of me and that the one who comes out of me will destroy this one. The promise of a destroyer, the one who would crush the serpent's head, is directed toward the serpent and the, the believers who are hearing this gospel, Adam and Eve, they will be recipients of this good news. A royal seed would be born from the woman. And he would destroy once and for all the serpent, sin, and the grave. The Lord promised enmity, conflict, hostility between the, between Satan and the woman, between the seed of Satan and the seed of the woman. This woman is not only the church, it's Eve. Not only Eve, but every believing woman thereafter who would have believing children and that that were foreknown and foreloved by God. Those that God loved before the foundation of the world and called to be His. The Lord Jesus in John 16 compares the grief that His disciples would experience over His death. Listen to this. Like like that of a woman who was about to give birth who has great sorrow. So this woman is not just a church, not just Eve, not just Mary, but even the disciples of Christ all of which are a part of the true church of Christ. Who is this woman? It is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is as though John is not just walking through the Old Testament or just the New Testament, pulling from one biblical text, but but walking through all of the Scriptures and saying, oh yes, that's the woman, and that's the woman, and that's the woman. And drawing them into this particular text to, to answer the question, Why do you, woman, why do you suffer great pain? It's because within you, within you is the child. Within you is the one who would be born. Within you is the one that will come and save the nations. And Satan, the one to whom that promise was directed, knows that his time is short. And he must do all that is within his power to stop that child from being born. So he persecutes the woman. When the promise of the Messiah was made, the serpent sought to destroy the woman, but he could not thwart the plans of God. The serpent, who we will address in our second point, sought to put the woman and her child to death, to destroy the promised one. This is why she cries out with labor pains. She's pursued... She's afflicted, she is persecuted, she's opposed, she's ridiculed, mocked, and even put to death. Why do the nations rage? Why has there been conflict from Cain and Abel, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, David and Saul, David and Goliath, Jesus and Judas? It is because, brothers and sisters, it is the tale of two kingdoms. The kingdom of darkness opposing the kingdom of light. The kingdom of Satan opposing the kingdom of God. Why have there been wars and rumors of wars, political factions, nations rising against nations, social unrest, divisions, betrayals, 
It is because God has promised that there will be hostility between these two kingdoms. Dear saints, when we spend our time debating political policies at the water cooler, divorcing the fact that what is actually going on, what is actually at work, is a battle between two kingdoms, the kingdom of darkness attempting to advance against the kingdom of light, then we are missing the big picture. When we spend all of our time listening to talking heads that do not have in mind the things of God, but only the things of men, and divorce the fact that there is a spiritual war going on, then we are missing the forest through the trees. When we hear a sermon, and our ears only are tuned in to what relates to what we think are current events, then Paul would ask us as he asked the Corinthians, are we not still carnal? Are you not still fleshly? Why do the nations rage? It is because there is a spiritual war going on. The woman is still in birthing travail. The gospel is still being preached. Sons are still being brought into the kingdom. And Satan is doing all that he can in the short time that he has left to stop the message of the gospel from going forth. Why are policies as they are? Because Satan is trying to silence the church. Why are there things being seen on TV in a greater manner than we would have ever seen? Because Satan is trying to make our message irrelevant. And when we sit around and say, things that have nothing to do with this spiritual battle, then we are missing the point of it all. What must we do in this spiritual battle? Uh, What must we do in this spiritual warfare? I'm going to quote a verse to you that you, you have probably heard before. Either you have heard or you have heard maybe an older person recite to you. Ephesians 6. 10 through 18. Some of the older Christians know exactly what that verse is. It is the armor of God. It's a verse that your grandma, if she's saved, would have said to you, son, daughter, child, you need to put on the full armor of God. It's a verse that those who have been in church for a long time may have quoted to you when you found yourself in affliction. Put on the full armor of God, child. It's a verse that we often hear and and possibly gently smile at because we don't take it too seriously. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul from Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10. If you would turn there, and if you don't turn there, that's fine, but listen please. Ephesians 6. And verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, stand. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, 
having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, which by, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints, and pray on behalf on my behalf, that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. Who is this man? That's not your grandma. That's not your grandma speaking. That's not an elderly person who is uh, gently and kindly telling you, son, daughter, put on the full armor of God. This is a man who has been beaten with rods. Stoned once. You know what it means to be stoned? It means they throw rocks at you until you die. This is a man who was shipwrecked three times. Who spent a day and a night drifting in the sea. A man who was on in danger in frequent journeys. He says he was in danger in the rivers from robbers, countrymen, non-countrymen. In danger in the city, wilderness, and at sea. Among those who claim to be brothers, he was also in danger. This man has known hardship. He's known sleepless nights. He's known what it means to be hungry and thirsty. He's known what it means to be often without food, to be cold, and often without warm clothes. On top of all of these things, he has a great concern for the church. Paul, how did you endure all of those hardships? And Paul would say, I wrote a letter to the church of Ephesus. And there I was inspired by God to encourage them to to put on the full armor of God. What is that, Paul? It's the helmet of salvation. It's the breastplate of righteousness. It's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It is being having shoes that leads you in places where you can share the gospel. And oh, Paul would call us to pray. Paul would call us to pray more than we talk. More than we talk about how bad things are. Paul would call us to pray about the bad things that we are experiencing. He would call us to remember that we have been charged to pray. And that when we pray, we are changed. That our wills are aligned with the will of God. And Paul would remind us of this among all things. Remember this. That when you are weak, He is strong. Remember that when you are suffering, it is through much suffering that we must enter the kingdom. Don't forget that. This is why you listen to the older people when they tell you that. This is why you don't laugh it off or smile them away gently. When the older person says to you, Put on the full armor of God, son. Put on the full armor of God, child. I want to be an older person who was able to say that, how do you think they made it that long? How do you think they made it to those years where they could say to a younger person who was going through suffering, who was going through trouble, who was going through tribulation, put on the full armor of God. That's how I've made it this long. Don't you want to be advanced in years? Mature. Not just old, but mature. Mature in Christ. Having the testimony that you have not abandoned your faith and you will not. Because you have, by the grace of God, 
armored yourself with His armor that He's given to you in this battle. What could be more current than this? What, what could be more of a current event than this spiritual warfare that's going on now? What could be more relevant than this? His tactics have changed. But our weapons of warfare have not. Why do the nations rage? Because there is a woman who will give birth, who has given birth and who is still yet giving birth to a seed. And from that seed is coming many sons and many daughters who will be brought into the kingdom of God. Why do the nations rage? Because Satan's time is short. And he roars around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Gird yourselves. Be prepared for warfare. Who is behind the darkness of it all? Number two, the dragon. This is verses three and four. Why do the nations rage? Why are they in an uproar? Here John gives the primary explanation for the great spiritual conflict that fuels the nations that rage against God. He is a dragon, a red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his head are seven diadems. In verses 9, verse 9, John identifies that dragon as being the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. We're first introduced to the dragon way back, as again we said, in Genesis chapter 3. This ancient serpent has tempted Adam and Eve. It was there in the garden when our first parents listened That God assured Satan that his tyranny would end soon by a skull-crushing seed of the woman. Satan does not know the day, saints. Satan does not know the hour. He knows this, though, that his time is short. So his fury is poured out as much as God will allow. Therefore, since the promise of the Messiah... Satan has been on an all-out attack to destroy the woman and her seed. He, again, walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He captured Cain and seduced Cain into killing his brother Abel. He was the concertmaster to Lamech's song of murder. He sat upon the throne of the hearts of men before the, before the flood when they did what was right in their own eyes, when every thought and intention of their heart was only evil all the time. He was the hatred behind Pharaoh. The Pharaoh who commanded all Hebrew boys to be tossed into the Nile. He was the pride behind the men who built the Tower of Babel. He was the disgust behind the sodomy of Sodom and Gomorrah. The gesture behind Ishmael's mocking of Isaac. The fury behind Esau's rage. The jealousy that filled Saul to attempt to pen David to the wall. The one who gave the blueprints to Haman to commit genocide upon Israel. He was the fear behind Herod's terror of the child who would be born in Bethlehem causing him to slay every little boy. He was the one who whispered in the ear of Salome to ask for John the Baptist's head. He was the one who filled Judas to betray an innocent man. He incited the crowds to yell, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! He was the mocker who said, He saved others. Let him save himself. He was behind Nero, 
Vaspian, Domitian, Trajan, Heredian, Aurelius, Dicius, Diocletian, all of whom attempted to destroy the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have there been other evil men throughout the history? Sure. There's been Hitler, there's been Pol Pot, there's been Genghis Khan, and we can name a host of others. But these that I've just mentioned, these have especially tried to destroy the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And who fueled their anger? Their father. This is why I can say it was Satan behind it all, because they are doing the works of their father. The Lord Jesus said, you are of your father, the devil, and you seek to do your father's will. The nations are in an uproar because Satan, his time is short, wants to destroy the woman and her seed, you and me. John uses all the wicked kingdoms who have targeted the people of God, Egypt and Babylon and Persia and Rome and other nations, He uses them as being embodied by one red dragon. Now we are all aware, children, let me uh, tell you, Satan is not a dragon. He's not literally red. He does not literally have ten horns or ten uh, and seven heads. None of those things. He doesn't have those things. But these are symbols. They are to symbolize something about Satan, about who he is. He's portrayed as being red because of his thirst for blood. Seven heads because he is crafty, he is cunning. Satan will attempt to deceive you. Satan is, not just young people, all people, Satan will attempt to deceive you. You don't need to listen to this sermon. Take a nap. It's not for you today. You don't need to be in church today. The Dodgers are playing today. Satan will deceive you by any means. And even do so by things that seem harmless. It's just, it's just, and when we begin to reason like that, it's just, then we are falling into the deception of of Satan. We are falling into his cunningness. It's just, it's exactly what he wants us to think. It's just. And in doing so, we excuse sin. You parents, you know. That if you gave your child a direct command and they aborted the mission that you gave to them by first saying, but dad, it's just. Mom, it's just. You would automatically say, it's just nothing. I told you to do thus and so. Why do we think that we are any different with God and us? That we could excuse away His commands by saying, it's just. No, son, daughter. That's a road that leads you and I away from Him. He's more cunning than all the creatures. Ten horns for His great power. He must not be underestimated. Seven diadems because He has power to influence. But His wisdom and His cunning is not infinite. Nor is His power He is not all wise. He is not all powerful. He may seem to be all knowing. He may seem to be all powerful. But his knowledge is corrupted and his power is counterfeit. He desires the crown of glory. 
He wants to exalt His throne above the throne of the Most High. He longs for all men. For even God Himself. Imagine that. He, he longs for all men and even God Himself to sing, Crown Him, Crown Him. Crown Him, Crown Him. Crown Him, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He wants even God Himself to bow down to Him. What did He say to the Lord? In the wilderness, all of the kingdoms of the world I will give to you if you would only bow down and worship me. What a madman. The twistedness and the insanity of Satan. And he is seeking to destroy you. If he would have the audacity to say to the face of the one who made him. I'll give you everything if you bow down and worship me. What do you think his tactics will be toward you? Verse 4, He swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them into the earth. Threw them to the earth. Some may automatically think that John is speaking about some kind of war in heaven between uh, Satan and his angels and God and his angels that happened somewhere before the creation of the world not not creation but the creation of the world that's outside of the flow of this context the stars that are swept away are the saints of God those who have awaited the birth of the Messiah and now those who are awaiting the return of the Messiah the people of God have their true identity before God in His throne So that when we are persecuted, it is regarded as though the angels of God are persecuted. It's taken from Daniel 8. But really the idea is taken from chapter 11. It's reiterated. The holy city is being trampled. The stars are being thrown to the earth. It's the same idea. The stars being thrown to the earth are Satan's attempt to destroy the people of God so that Messiah cannot be born and so that people cannot be born again. The Lord promised Abraham that through his seed he would be given children as numerous as the stars in the sky. This was fulfilled in both a literal and spiritual manner. Father Abraham had many sons. And those who trace their lineage to Abraham are many. But more so are those who find their spiritual lineage in Abraham who placed his faith in his seed who would save and bless the nations. If your faith is in Christ, then you are a son of Abraham. You are true Israel. And how many countless sons and daughters have been brought into the faith? The faith of Abraham. We are the stars of the sky and Satan. Satan has afflicted many of us. Satan has put many of us to death. Satan has put many of us on burn stakes has uh, boiled many of us in oil, has put many of us to death by the sword. But just as he thought that his victory was won by nailing Christ to the cross and was wrong, so he is also wrong. When we die in our faith, holding fast to our confession of faith, we do not lose, we still win. He can kill our bodies but cannot have our soul. And there has been a promise that our bodies will be returned to our soul. And that we will live and reign with Christ forever. He stands before the woman who is about to give birth so that he might devour her child. But fails at every turn. The woman bears a son. His name is Emmanuel, God with us. 
And from His birth to the wilderness, to the garden, to the cross, to the guarded tomb, Satan has attempted to stop the victory of Christ and save his own head from being crushed, but has failed at every single turn. Amen. Amen. Though Satan rages against God by influencing the nations, God has secured His victory through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that leads us to our final point. Number three, the royal seed. And she gave birth to a son, a male child who was to rule the nations with an iron, a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to His throne. Here, in this verse, we are given, now listen closely, I'm going to slow down here, a snapshot into the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting here that though we are given this snapshot of the ministry of Christ, we are given no information about His death. Only, listen to this, life unto glorious life. He was born, and then He was caught up to God and sits on the throne. There's not even a mention of His ministry. Only life unto glorious life. The purpose for this omission is to highlight the victory of Christ. In His resurrection and His ascension. Dear saints, the nations may rage, but Christ is victorious. Satan may pour out his greatest offense, but it will all be in vain. Christ is victorious. Christ is supreme. Christ is king. This therefore means that if you are in Christ, then you are victorious. That the victory of Christ is also your victory. And this may be difficult, as I said earlier, for us to hear because... We so often hear about the declaration of victory that we have in Christ. This declaration that you are royal ones. And the crowns that we have in Christ seem to conflict often with our daily realities. We hear of crowns, but we only know crosses. It's true. We must take up our cross. Daily. It's true. We must die to ourselves. Daily. It's true, we must enter the kingdom through much suffering. But the cross and the dying to ourselves and the suffering that we experience does not discount the victory that has already been accomplished by Christ. You suffer, but you already have victory. Life is difficult as a Christian, but victory is already yours. In fact, I'm convinced that John has not left out the question of why do nations rage back in chapter 11 because of his reference to a male child. He says a male child. And she gave birth to a male child, he says, who rules the nations. And then he says, with a rod of iron. Why is that significant? Because in the second psalm, from which the question comes, why do the nations rage? In verse 7, God declares to His eternal Son, verse 7, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He says, He said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Go back and listen to Pastor Isaiah's sermon on the eternal generation of the Son. But John alludes to the verse by stating a male child has been born. The prophecy about the Messiah of God has been fulfilled. 
in chapter 12, John says she gave birth to a son, a male son. In the context of still answering the question, why do the nations rage? John's saying, I'm looking at Psalm 2 and I'm giving you an interpretation. I'm giving you a commentary on Psalm 2 from Revelation 11 and 12. Prophecy has been fulfilled. Satan could not stop the male child from being born. He was born. Not only was he born, but all that he was to accomplish in his ministry was accomplished. And because it was accomplished, he was raised up to his rightful throne in heaven where he belongs. He was born. He accomplished what he was to accomplish. And he has succeeded in his work. And now he sits enthroned in heaven where he and he alone belongs. God says also about his son. You shall break them with the rod of iron. Oh, we have just read that, didn't we? In Revelation chapter 12, God says, well, I'm in Hebrews. In Revelation chapter 12, God says of him, And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. In Psalm 2, you shall break them with a rod of iron and shatter them like earthenware, shatter them like pottery. In Revelation chapter 11, all of the kingdom, uh, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our God. The male child has surely crushed all the nations with that rod of iron. He has been given the nations so that there is only one now, one nation. The holy nation of God, the one true kingdom, the kingdom of God. Who has done this? Christ has done this. Why do the nations rage? Because Satan is trying to stop that one kingdom from being consummated. It's already been inaugurated. He's waiting for, he's trying to thwart the plans of God so that the consummation of the kingdom will not come. But he does so in vain. It's what the, the, the saints of God, you and I, it's what we declare in Revelation 11. All the plans of the people, the kings, the nations, they plot in vain against God. Christ rules. Christ reigns. Why do the nations rage? Rather than John telling us why, John immediately tells us what happens to those who oppose God. They will be judged, suffer the justice of God. But those who trust in God, those who are of His kingdom, they will be rewarded from the greatest to the least. But he hasn't forgotten the question, why? He's given the answer. Because God has promised that He will destroy evil and the evil one. If you are not in Christ and you suffer evil, you suffer what, what's due to you. If you are in Christ and you suffer for righteousness sake, you are suffering persecution from the evil one who was attempting to stop you from celebrating in that kingdom that will one day say the kingdom of, of the world has become the kingdom of our God. It's been swallowed up. He doesn't want you to be a part of those voices. He knows his time is near. He knows it's over. He doesn't want you to be a part of that celebration. He knows his end. He knows his, his end is defeat. He doesn't want you to be celebrating on that day. He wants you to suffer with him. He is doomed. And because He is doomed, He is pouring out His fury on the righteousness of God. But the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Amen. The kingdom of God has been inaugurated by the resurrection and ascension of Christ. 
So worship Christ, Psalm 2 tells you. Kiss the Son who is the Eternal One. Do not oppose Him or you will be shattered like pottery from an iron rod. He's risen. He reigns. He is enthroned in heaven, His rightful place. Crown Him, crown Him. Crown Him King of kings and Lord of lords. The victory of Christ ensures our victory. Even when, especially when, we don't feel like we have any victory. Even when, especially when, we suffer the weightiness of the cross. We must remind ourselves of victory in Christ. Are you having a hard week? You have victory in Christ. Is your life with your family challenging? Because they are unbelievers. You have victory in Christ. Christ is enthroned. Christ shall return. Christ will bring an end to all evil. He has given us a seat to reign with Him, where we shall be with Him there forevermore. When we gather, this truth is celebrated. This is why we must not avoid the gathering of the saints. We've been given this day as we wander through the wilderness as a place of nourishment for us that you can't get anywhere else. That you won't get anywhere else. Verse 6, which verse six, which we will consider the next time. God has provided a place for us in the wilderness. The woman has been given a place as she flees. In the wilderness where God nourishes her for a time. How long? 1,260 days. What does that mean? A time of persecution and tribulation. You will be nourished. You don't find nourishment at the game. You don't find nourishment at the family function. You don't find nourishment anywhere else but here. It's the place that God has said, I've given you a place in the desert while you roam. It's here and nowhere else. The people of God forsake all other things on this day and say, this is the only place where I can be nourished. This is the only... Listen to this. And let me say this. The people of God do that. The people of God don't do that. Uh, the, The people who are not the people of God don't do that. Let me make that real abundantly clear. The people of God do that. The people of God say, where I can be nourished is where the saints of God gather. The people who are not God's people say, it does not matter. It's just... Trust and believe, not because of what I said, but because of what He said. The people of God say, this is where I must be. Because here and only here is where I am nourished while I wander through this desert, leading me into the place, land of promise. Anywhere else is not where I can be nourished. And And if we are in those other places and we make the excuse while we are there, it's just, check your soul. This is why on the Sabbath we are nowhere else. Here we taste heaven. Here we meet with God. Here we are given food and drink that the world cannot give us. Here we are like nowhere else nourished. Why do the nations rage? 
Because Satan's time is near. And he desires to sift you as wheat. But Christ has prayed for you. That your faith may not fail. That your faith may not fail. And if you are in Christ, then you will not fail. Because victory, His victory, is ours. So crown Him, crown Him. Crown Him King of kings and Lord of lords. And remain faithful even unto death. For Christ promises that if you remain faithful even unto death, then there is a crown for you as well. That He shares with you. Imagine us. That Christ would share His crown with us. That He places us on His seat to reign with Him. There is no other place then where you, woman, bride of Christ, can find yourself meeting with Him and being nourished by Him than when the saints gather and celebrate the victory that is ours in Christ. Why the nations rage? Because Satan's time is short. Because Christ has already won the victory.